It's Palm Sunday, and uh, we're at the beginning of Holy Week here, and uh, this service, as we, uh, we enter into this, uh, this look at Palm Sunday, is going to be really different. Um, uh, and, and let me just put it, put it this way. My, my parents uh, were missionaries, and when they came back on home assignment, they traveled to churches every weekend. And as a young kid, one of the best gifts they gave me uh, as an eight or you know, seven or eight-year-old uh, to keep my restless, antsy body plastered in the pew uh, was a comic book version of the Bible. And I loved it. I loved reading the stories of the Bible while, while dad was preaching or mom was sharing stories. And, uh, and I, I just love the stories, particularly the stories about Jesus. I, I loved also the, the artist's depiction of a particular scene, and those scenes captivated me. Uh, and, and you know the story well. I mean, Jesus calling his disciples and then teaching uh, in such countercultural ways. And, and then his displays of power uh, over illness. Uh, he healed so many people. And, and it displays of power over nature as well as over evil. And, and the life of Christ is, is this building crescendo till Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, the crowds in Jerusalem as Jesus is entering that city riding on a donkey, they're, they're waving palm branches, and they've got to be saying to, to each other, he, he has to be the Messiah. I mean, who else could it be? Jesus has to be the Messiah. And what a story Jesus is. What a, what a story of his life. And it's not just a story, it's your story. It's my story. It's, it's our story. We have this common union in the life of Christ. Communion in the life of Christ. And it's, it's, a, it's an incredible story. And so today, um, you're going to hear several stories. You're going to hear about the Jesus who calls. You're going to hear about the Jesus who forgives, the Jesus who frees, the Jesus who heals, the Jesus who transforms, and the Jesus who saves. You're going to see stories and pictures, and if you would, just allow yourself to kind of find that warm place in your house, in your mind, and sit back like you're holding a book and reading it, and just let these stories impact you. And as we get to the end of the stories, the goal is not for you to remember every single story. My prayer for you is that one of those stories would be used by God to speak to you today. And at the end of the service, you'd be able to walk out into your next week knowing that here's what God said to me today. So I just wanna, I wanna encourage you just to sit back and relax and be ready to respond and soak in these stories of Jesus because he's our Jesus and we are united in his life. My boys, James and John, grew up around boats and fish. Lots of fish. Zebedee and the boys fished, had our own business. Fishing put food on our table and clothes on our back. Andrew and Peter lived just down the road. Their family fished, our family fished. None of us was wealthy by any measure, but we made a nice living and people respected us. We even had employees. My husband Zebedee grew up in the fishing business that his father owned, and our sons, James and John, would eventually take over our family business. I remember the day Zebedee came home from work with only our youngest son. I wondered where the older boys were. I had a nice meal waiting. My youngest came bound 
pounding through the door first. Mom, Mom, guess what happened today? I'm going to be Dad's new business partner. Seems like Zebedee and the boys were cleaning the nets when Jesus, the new rabbi, stopped at their boat. I'd heard he was saying people should repent because the kingdom of God was near, but no one really knew what he meant by that. Anyway, Zebedee said that Peter and Andrew were with this new rabbi. He thought that was pretty strange, and when the threesome stopped at our boat, Jesus told James and John to follow him. And just like that, they put down their fishing stuff and followed him. They just left. Zebedee and our employees just stood there. It didn't take Zebedee long, though, to realize he'd have to hire a couple of guys to replace James and John. Our youngest was just sure he would be his father's new business partner. My boys James and John had just taken off with this new rabbi, just like that. I'd heard about him, and I was sort of proud that he wanted my boys to be his disciples. They'd probably learn a lot from him. It was sort of an honor to be handpicked by a rabbi to be his disciple. And this rabbi, Jesus, was teaching something about a kingdom. A kingdom is pretty fancy stuff. If he called James and John to follow him, maybe there would be ways I could help with this kingdom he talked about. Some of the other women and I eventually cared for the needs of Jesus and his disciples. You know, cooking for them when they were in town. <laughs> they were a hungry bunch. Mending their clothes and, you know, things like that. We did that for more than two years. James and John said Jesus often taught things the religious leaders didn't like. Sometimes... Even my boys didn't understand what he said, but after a while, Jesus started taking James and John and their friend Peter away to spend time with just them. Because of that, I figured they might get to occupy special places in this kingdom Jesus kept talking about. The boys and I asked him about that once. He gave us the strangest reply before he told us he couldn't grant them a special place in this kingdom of his. He said something about drinking from a cup with him. It reminded me of that old saying about drinking from the same cup and that it means sharing someone's fate. I really don't know what he meant by that. Maybe I was a little pushy, but I was just looking out for my boys. That's what mothers do. I saw who I really was the day Jesus called me away from my life of tax collection to join his group of disciples, a group that included the Zebedee boys plus Peter and Andrew. I already knew them, of course, since I used to tax those fishermen pretty hard, I'm sorry to admit. I didn't feel worthy to be one of them. I expected them to resent me. I remember Peter asking Jesus how many times he needed to forgive someone. Maybe Peter was thinking about me when he asked that question. He asked that on the day I began ministering with them. I'd cheated their family fishing business over the years. 
Those four disciples had every reason to distrust me and think I would betray their mission. Jesus shook up all of our self-righteous notions about forgiveness that day. He set the bar out of reach for Brother Peter and the rest of us. Just before choosing me to join them, Jesus had encountered a man who was paralyzed. He had been brought by believing friends to Jesus for healing. Jesus said to him, Take courage, my child. Your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees became incensed at Jesus for taking the role of God and to forgive that man. They just never understood who Jesus was. To prove his authority, Jesus then healed the man of the paralysis. I wish I'd seen the Pharisees' faces afterwards. <laughs> Incredible! I gave a party at my house later that same evening. I invited all of my friends, an array of sinners, just like me. Undesirables were everywhere. The Pharisees lost all decency that night calling my friends scum and wondering why a holy man like Jesus ate with all of us. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do, Jesus told them. I have come not to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. There's no question who the sinners were who needed forgiveness. All of us, even the Pharisees, but they didn't want it. My ears really perked up when he encouraged us to show mercy rather than ritual sacrifice. As a child of Levi, I lived a life void of mercy toward other families like those of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Sure, I played the religious practice game, giving only mouth service to the truth. That night, the Messiah laid bare my hypocrisy. He called me to forgive in the same way I have been forgiven, completely and without retaliation. Yes, I saw who I really am that day. It is cold this morning, colder than normal. I run toward the group of people, so many people, and they sound so angry. Why are they so angry? Something must be wrong. One of the men sees me running behind them. He grabs me and yells at me. This is no place for a child. Go home. His face is ugly. His breath smells bad. He growls and throws me on the ground. Why won't they let me see? I have an idea. If I run as fast as I can between those two tents, I can catch up to the men. Tents and poles are in my way. But I see the people, I smile, I am faster. There's a woman. They're pushing her around. They grab at her and shove her. The men are so mean to her. What has she done? I heard them shout, to the temple. This teacher will decide her fate. We will trap him with his own words. Who is the teacher? Why do they want to trap him? The men are shouting and picking up big rocks. What are they going to do? I beat them to the temple. The courtyard is empty, except for a couple of people on the steps ahead. A man is speaking to them. See this teacher the men were yelling about? He looks nice. Brown hair and beard. 
I wonder what he is saying. I want to get closer to him, but I need to hide. I run behind a big pillar. I can hear the teacher man. I can see the whole room. A loud group of men are here. They push the crying woman into the temple and stand all around her. I get down low and hold tight to the big cold pillar. I hold my breath. They throw the woman down in front of the teacher. He does not look angry. He is so calm, but my heart is beating fast. One of the angry men yelled, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? I think I've heard of adultery. What is it again? It must be really bad. I look at the teacher man. He isn't saying anything. Did he hear the man speak? He bends down and moves his fingers around the stone ground. I can't see. What is he writing? Why? I like to draw when I get nervous. Maybe he's nervous. The angry men look at each other. They look confused. So am I. They keep bothering him. He stands up. Everyone gets quiet. The teacher looks at the woman, then looks at the angry man. He says, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. He bends down and starts drawing again. I look at the angry men and try not to laugh. They look funny with their mouths open. Their eyes are real big. They can't stone her. They are all sinners. Everyone's a sinner. The teacher is calm and keeps drawing. The angry men crunch up their faces like they ate something sour. They walk away. They drop the rocks and leave. Then they are all gone. It is just the teacher man and the woman. She looks scared and surprised. The teacher stands up. She looks at him. He says, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She says, no. The teacher says, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. Who is this teacher? He's not like other teachers. I want him to be my teacher. The woman stands up and walks away. She's free. I step out from behind the pillar. He sees me and smiles. I smile back. You know, that was another thing about him that was special. Do you remember in the scroll of Isaiah the prophet how it foretold of one who would take our sicknesses and remove our diseases? Well, he was doing that all the time. Classic example. Do you remember me telling you about a sermon on a mountainside? Well, even just that afternoon, he was doing things that could take your breath away. I remember following Jesus as he was walking down through the people. He didn't seem to care where the footpath was. It was like he wanted to go where he knew he should. Folks all around had just heard him and were eager to reach out. But he kept on right until there was suddenly an opening in the crowd. I didn't notice why at first. My brother Pete was the first to say anything. I heard him hiss, leper, just loud enough that I'm sure Jesus understood. But Jesus didn't stop. He walked into the clearing and only then abruptly halted. The leper, dressed in tattered and frayed robes and wrapped with scraps of wool bandage, suddenly sprang forward. 
I know I recoiled in horror, as many others did, but then I saw him fall on his knees at Jesus' feet. If you want to, you can heal me, he said, clutching his garments with a pale arm covered with sores and dirt. I expected Jesus to tell him to go wash like Elisha told Naaman. Instead, Jesus reached out, like this, and touched him. There were a lot of shocked gasps all around us. You could have heard a cricket chirp across the valley. Then, I actually looked at the man. The diseased skin was healed, and even somewhat tan. There were no sores left, even though the dirt still showed where they had been. There was murmuring all around us. But Jesus simply instructed him to go and offer the fitting sacrifices, witness that he was healed. I remembered that our own mom was homesick back at Peter's house. I hadn't thought about it till then, but it hurt to think that some stranger was okay when my own mom might die with a high fever. But you know, it was like Jesus knew what was distracting me. We headed down into my town and eventually made our way to Peter's house. Her eyes were dull. She was shaking with chills and there was a sweat standing out on her brow as we entered the room. It was frightful to see her lying in bed that way. But again, Jesus just reached out. He touched her hand very gently. And in an instant, she was getting up. I thought for a moment she must be hallucinating. But then I got a clear view of her face. It was fresh, and her eyes were alive. She had so much energy that she set about preparing a meal for the Lord. The whole evening, there were many more, and Jesus reached out and healed all who came. The air was sticky with grief. Lazarus had died four days earlier, but his presence lingered still. I could almost hear his deep laugh, see his toothy grin, but reality reminded me he was gone and lying dead in a cold tomb. I shook the image from my mind as I continued working in the kitchen. I could hear Mary in the other room with the mourners who had come. They'd been pouring in by the handfuls since news of my brother's death. Covered faces of wailing women sat with her as she graciously accepted their kind words. I left all of this to Mary. I knew that if I lingered too long in that room, the finality of death's grip may settle deep in my heart and I may begin to weep and never be able to stop. Sobs began to wreck my shoulders anyway. I needed fresh air. Wiping the salty tears from my face, I grabbed a bucket and headed for our well. Even this held its memories of Lazarus. I remember the day he and our friend Jesus had first pulled water out of its earthy grasp. Their skin glistened from sweat. They had worked all morning in the hot sun and were almost giddy as they pulled up the first bucket. The cool water sloshing over onto their dusty sandals. They laughed and slapped each other's backs at their accomplishment. Jesus, Lazarus' dearest friend. Where was he now, now that his friend was gone from this world? No breath in his body, no color in his cheeks. We had sent word for him, but he never came. For days, Mary and I held Lazarus' weak hand slowly watching the life seep from him. We tried all we knew to do, but he only worsened. Our faith was strong until we saw the last breath escape our brother's cracked lips. 
he was gone. Jesus had not come in time. Anger reddened my cheeks. I had seen with my own eyes the miracles Jesus could perform and thought he loved Lazarus. But why hadn't he come? Why had he let Lazarus die? I knew when I saw him I would ask. I would ask boldly and loudly and he would know he had failed me. I thought it was a mirage when I looked up and saw him walking the short distance to my home. I dropped the pail and ran until I found myself looking into his face. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. I heard the accusation in my tone. Surprised at my own charge, I looked away. When I finally had the courage to look into his eyes again, I immediately recognized what was in them. Sorrow. Jesus, my Lord, was carrying his own heavy sadness for my brother. How could I have been so wrong? As we spoke, Mary came running to us, and I saw Jesus tremble at the sight of her tears. Where have you laid him? He simply asked her. The band of mourners from our home followed silently as Mary and I led Jesus to the tomb. When we arrived at the tomb, Jesus just stood there, looking at the stone. He stood there motionless for a few minutes before I noticed tears rolling off his cheeks, spilling onto the dry ground where we stood. Unsure of what to do, I began to look away when I heard him command, take away the stone. I wanted to object, to scream and protest at the obscene thought of it, but my heart reminded me this man was the son of God. I had doubted him once today and I would not do it again. Lazarus, come out. The words boomed as they ricocheted off the stone. Mary fell to her knees, and I felt the arms of one of the twelve brace me as my own legs began to give out. I struggled for breath as my brother stepped forward, still wrapped in the linen I had shrouded him in only days earlier. It was in that moment when my brother's still heart began to beat that I began to put the pieces together. Dozens of dinners when Jesus had spoken of his own death filled my memory, and I felt dizzy with realization. At once I understood that he had waited to show us that death had no victory. The voice that brought warmth and blood to my brother's corpse will boom again someday, and there will be no more death. With three words, Jesus had transformed everything, transformed death into life, transformed doubt into faith, transformed grief into hope. At once, I did the only thing I could do. I fell at his feet and worshiped. I wake to rediscover that you are not here. I sob quietly, curled up, waiting for the pain to stop for today. I've been trapped by grief, imprisoned, unable to force myself to leave the house. Finally, I rise and take your prayer shawl, this woven testament of your life. I wrap it tightly around me as if it could bring you back to wear it again. In my mind's eye, I see you bending in prayer See your face under the prayer shawl as you return from the synagogue. 
I need your strength even to go to market. In the market, I, I pass Yasmin's booth. She smiles at me over the plump dates and then comes to press one into my palm as she gives me a quick hug. Two boys run by, laughing with each other. They accidentally knock over a pot of grain and then bump into me. They are babbling about a donkey and a man. They point down the street. Have I heard of that man, of Jesus? Look, he's coming, riding a donkey. I see people filling the street and hear the swelling noise of the crowd, shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are throwing things on the ground. Branches are being dragged over and put down. Cloaks and cloth of all kinds hiding the sand and soil of the street. Some line the sides of the road while others crowd ahead in a mass, surging forward. A gust of air pulls at my shawl. The fringes move across my neck. There he is. The man the boys were talking about, riding a donkey. His feet would touch the ground unless he pulled them up, and he rests lightly on the small beast as men lead it down the center of the street. People continue to throw down their cloaks and anything they have. Hosanna! They reach out to touch him, his robe, even the donkey. I hear them calling, Master, Rabbi, Messiah, he pauses here to touch one on the shoulder, there to speak words to another. Hosanna! My prison of grief begins to crumble. People bump around me, laughing and celebrating. Triumph! Swirls of cloth and palms fill the air. I tug at your shawl, unwrapping it from my neck, releasing it to place this piece of our life before this man surrendering. He passes before me and unbelievably, his eyes meet mine. They reach deep into me, speaking to my withered soul, comfort, release, wholeness. Follow me, he says. And then he moves on, majestic, the crowd roars, Hosanna! I turn and step into the path behind him. Hosanna! One step, and I am saved. The Jesus story is not just some uh, collection of narratives from the past that has no impact on the present or our future. The life of Jesus is, is still touching lives. He's touched our lives. He's the Jesus who still calls. He still forgives. He still frees, heals, transforms, saves. And I wonder what Jesus said to you today.